Hey everyone, before we get started with this episode of UNT Pod, I'd like to take a minute to introduce you to a couple of my friends from UNT's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute. I'm Jordan Williams, and I'm the Communications Specialist for Lifelong Learning and Community Engagement at UNT, and uh, also for the OLLI at UNC program, which you're here to talk about today. My name is Susan Supak, and I am a member and ambassador at OLLI. And I also host the Ollie at UNT podcast. Ollie at UNT has a ton of incredible learning opportunities for adults ages 50 and better, offered at five different locations across the region. Those locations include the UNT campus, Robeson Ranch, Denton's Good Samaritan Society, the Senior Center at Frisco Square, and the Flower Mound Senior Center. For a, a very affordable annual membership fee, uh, members can basically take as many classes as they want. Um, a lot of our classes are just one 90-minute session. Um, some of them run to about four sessions of 90 minutes. It's really um, just a flexible way for people to learn about a wide variety of topics. But the sciences, the arts, history is a big uh, popular subject, so we do a lot of history. Um, and music is, is something that people enjoy, so we have a lot of great music classes. But we do technology, um, psychology, uh, anthropology. We also have some curated lecture series that bring in sometimes special speakers. Well, as Jordan said, there's just a vast range of classes. There cannot be anything that someone is not interested in somewhere because it's just such a range. The 30-minute podcast Susan hosts mainly features UNT faculty who teach all the classes, and they've discussed everything from decoding the clues the Zodiac Killer left behind to how colors affect your emotions. She also interviews Ollie members about their lives and backgrounds. I'm often surprised at the gems, the really incredible things that each of the people I interview had that I had no idea. And once we start talking, they say, oh, yes, by the way, 80 years ago, the Nazis invaded my hometown and that kind of thing. And it's just a wonderful opportunity. To learn more about Ollie or check out the podcast, visit olli.unt.edu. Ollie accepts class proposals year-round from UNT faculty and graduate students and encourages its members to submit ideas for future courses. Middle East for existence for good health and prosperity that you may be blessed with many sons and daughters may you be blessed abundantly with plentiful crops livestock and wealth may you be richly endowed with knowledge and wisdom may your footprints be as plentiful as the stars in the sky and your descendants be as the grains of the sand on the seashore. When the storms of sickness and bad omens come or starvation prevails, clasp them with your left hand and embrace me with your right hand. May God always protect you and keep you safe from sorrow, sadness, diseases, and hunger. May you be blessed with long life like that of a banyan tree. May the heavens protect you. 
Shumshat Kalar is a first-year PhD student in UNT's Department of Linguistics and an Indian native from the northeastern state of Manipur. What she just recited and translated into English was a blessing ritual in the region's native language of Lamkong. The ritual has been passed from generation to generation, bestowed by elders onto their children and grandchildren. For a while, as Christianity grew more prominent in the region, the ritual faded. But over the past decade, there's been an increased interest in embracing Manipur's traditional culture. But the ritual isn't the only regional aspect in need of preservation. If you had never before heard or heard of the Long Kong language, you're not alone. It's currently labeled as critically endangered, with fewer than 10,000 speakers remaining. Back in 2005, Sumshat was pursuing a master's in human rights, and as she tried to translate human rights documents into Long Kong, she found the process nearly impossible. As far as she knew, there were no written forms of the language. Then, after attending a UN conference, her mission became clear. Teach Long Kong in village schools and churches so that local children would learn the native language. Then I started talking to people. We need to do something about the language and it is important that we start like working towards uh, doing uh, work so that we can promote it more and then make it uh, a language that will thrive. People would say, oh, we are speaking, we are talking every day and how do you think that we, we are losing the language? But then I would say, look at our children because I grew up with my grandmother, my mother telling uh, stories, bedtime stories or while we are eating telling stories, folk songs, or anything, and having seen with them, work with them in the fields or farms, and doing things together, that's how I learned. But these kids now, like, we are having TVs. Uh, from late 90s, we started having TVs. So when you have the TV set in your homes, then you may not have the cable connection, and you won't get the uh, live this thing, but people can always buy CDs, cassettes, and then use them, So, which is never in our own language. It will be English, it will be Hindi, it will be Manipuri, or people even love to watch Korean movies and listen to them. So, like, so when I tell them, yeah, but they need to learn English or they need to know the other language, that's how they would say, but like, it took uh, almost 10 years, and then at last, like, back in 2011-12, that's how the first time that we were able to get ourselves mobilized and we formed the Lamkang Language Education Committee. And since that time, Sumshat says, the Lamkang Language Education Committee has made significant gains, especially when she met Shobana Chelia, UNT Associate Dean and Professor in UNT's Department of Linguistics. Chelia had begun researching Long Kong in the early 2000s, even co-authoring a book about the language in 2007. And once she was introduced to Sumshot in 2013, the two began collaborating on a National Science Foundation-funded Long Kong Lexical Database and Online Dictionary, a digital repository that houses audio, video, and transcribed Long Kong texts. In 2017, Sumshot arrived at UNT to officially pursue a master's in linguistics. We did a lot of workshops and people are uh, interested and we mobilized like village to village and we had several workshops where elders were invited, elders shared their stories and then 
young people were made to listen and write the stories. And then also we had rapid word collections and stuff. And people now realize like um, there is a need to work on the language. And that is still continuing on in the community. But here in UNT, the work here is a much, uh, what you call academic and it's a very advanced kind of work because you're describing the lang uh, the grammar of the language and then all this transcription which are like into details which we cannot do back home so this work here is special and it has like a very uh, good setting which whoever wants to study about Lamkang language later can refer to it use it can be a resource for and the others later to come and use it, which is like a good resource that is built already, which will never go away. So, and it is being digitized in the UNT digital library. So it's a very good, you know, progress that is made here. How do you develop a gateway to that collection that will be attractive to a number of different users? This is Chelia. She's renowned as an expert and mentor in South Asian languages and is determined to make languages like Lamkong more accessible to everyone, from scholars to native speakers. Sumshot has pointed out a really good, you know, the most important case uh, that we think of, which is the community themselves wanting to learn more about their cultures. But then what about you and me? Would we want to go in? And so it's really something that we're working on right now with the library and information science folks and making guides and collections that would help people kind of search for the thing that would touch them. And as some should have said, every part of language is relevant to um, every part of your life. So if somebody's interested in botany, we need to be tagging our data so that a botanist can go and say, what are the cool you know, flora that I can find in Chandale district where Lamkang is spoken? What's the quick way for me to find that and access that in that, in that database? So it's an ongoing kind of research issue of making those collections fully searchable and findable for a large variety of people. UNT is focused on changing the world, but that doesn't always mean looking ahead. Sometimes it means taking a step back and reminding ourselves of where we come from, something that, time after time, is tied to language. Language is the basis of our identity or our culture, so language is the main uh, thing that really uh, defines you who you are. In this episode of UNT Pod, join me, Erin Crisales, and a host of UNT language experts as we discuss UNT's dedication to preserving and celebrating endangered, undocumented, and indigenous languages. From students who traveled across the globe to join the university's trailblazing efforts in documenting South Asian languages, to the professors who have spent their careers studying those languages, and advocating for their survival. Part one, the sounds of silence. Globally, as many as 3,000 languages are considered in danger, and 230 have gone silent since 1950, linguists estimate there are roughly 7,000 languages spoken worldwide though the number is hard to pin down. Some languages have fallen silent, while others, like Monk and Yali, which we'll talk more about later, are waiting to be discovered. But when it comes to languages, what does endangered, 
a term that Chelia notes is slowly falling out of favor. Mean exactly. So let me tell you what it meant before and then what terms we're now using. Uh, there have been scales of what they call scales of endangerment that have been proposed by different bodies. The UN has, UNESCO has one as well. And it talks about um, the different factors that predict how many people will be speaking that language within a generation. So is there transmission of that language from mom and dad to kids? Is there, are there resources? That means are there um, things on the computer? Is it in social media? Is there stuff written in that language? Are there textbooks? Are there dictionaries? So is it resource or not resource? Does it have prestige or not prestige? So if it doesn't have prestige, people will be moving away. Does it have domains of use? So if you're only using it for rituals, then that's the only language. We'll know Latin for the mass, but we're not going to use it for dating, right? Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. What, what are the domains of use of that language? And so there's a whole list of these uh, factors that help you rate how endangered and how vital a language is. For some communities, the term endangered is too dire and pessimistic. They would rather turn that on the head and say, I would like a vitality scale or a vitality index. So people talk more now about where do you lie on the vitality index. Um, we used to talk about extinct languages. That language is gone. No one uses that term anymore. They use more sleeping languages because of language examples like Miamia, where the language was thought to be dead, but now here it is. Nearly 40% of the world's languages are in danger of falling silent, with the majority belonging to indigenous peoples. That's a big reason why the United Nations proclaimed 2019 the International Year of Indigenous Languages to raise awareness and mobilize coordinated action around the world. As a leader in diversity and language preservation, the UNT community heeded the call. On October 15th, UNT's Native American Student Association will host Indigenous Peoples Day, a celebration set for 11 a.m. on Sage Lawn, which commemorates Native Americans' history and shared culture with food, fenders, and the intertribal sport of stickball. In September, UNT began hosting a series of seven events devoted to Indigenous languages, all organized by Christina Watson, a design and linguistic anthropologist in UNT's Department of Anthropology. Watson's research focuses on communication, collaboration, and community building, and how those aspects work together, from meetings to online communication. UNT is a registered partner on this initiative. And in fact, um, we're taking the lead among Texas universities in recognizing that initiative. So um, we developed an event series that includes seven events, all in fall semester. Um, they all have powerful stories of language loss and then language revitalization, um, and also kind of show how languages are, the indigenous languages are also connected to the cultures and the histories and the identities of indigenous groups. The series keynote was delivered September 9th by Daryl Baldwin, a linguistic and cultural preservationist from Miami University in Ohio. A citizen of the Miami tribe of Oklahoma, Baldwin revitalized the language of the Miami nation, who in the 19th century were forcefully removed from their homeland in the Great Lakes region. <laughs> Miami had gone silent until Baldwin taught himself and his family the language. 
Since 1995, he has worked with the Miami people to develop culture and language-based educational materials and programs for the tribal community. To Chelia, he's a prime example of what linguistics can accomplish. If you have good archival materials and you have a will, you can actually recover some of that information, even though it's not going to be original. UNT's Year of Indigenous Languages series also includes a live storytelling event, which Soonshot will take part in, along with Lane Barrett, a UNT student and member of the Suwahi Nation of Oklahoma, and native speakers of Hawaiian and the Nigerian language Epic. The event is set from 10.30 a.m. to noon on November 9th at the Fort Worth Museum of Science and History. Um, so the idea is, I guess, to introduce people to, you know, what are... What is it? What is like almost experientially? What does it feel like to hear an indigenous language? And so we have um, a set of hopefully five speakers who will first tell a story in their language, no more than five minutes, and then tell the story again in English. And so people can kind of experience them both ways. And then so so each speaker will do that. And then at the end, there will be some opportunity for the audience to ask questions about kind of challenges facing indigenous languages. The event, Lawson says, is important because it engages students in indigenous languages and provides them with resources that enable them to learn more. I guess first I hope that everyone who participates in these event events will come away with more understanding and knowledge about um, kind of the histories and challenges and accomplishments of indigenous peoples. Um, and then secondly, I hope that some students will become really interested in this topic and continue to explore it. And the website that we created includes a resources page and a get involved page. And both of those have a lot of um, ideas for how people can continue to explore the topic, um, including that they can talk to various professors and on campus who are engaged in these issues. Of course, many students here are already invested in studying endangered and indigenous languages. And they, along with their faculty mentors, also are focused on considering how languages lose vitality in the first place. So when people in areas of um, conflict, when people, certain people move out and they eventually, there is a fear of loss, loss of language and lo language is related to your identity. So there's also that fear of um, losing your identity. This is Sadaf Munshi, chair of UNT's Department of Linguistics, who specializes in historical linguistics and language contact and documentation, as well as language and conflict. There are many reasons languages can fall silent, she says, like pop culture influences and being educated in a more commonly spoken language, as Sumshot mentioned previously. But political conflict can also play a role. Moonshi grew up in Kashmir, where she saw firsthand the havoc that conflict can wreak on a region, including its languages. One of the projects that I have worked on is called Kashmir Oral History Project. And in that project, it's a collaborative project. So we collected um, narratives, personal narratives from people talking about their own experiences, how their um, um, life was impacted or by conflict and um, one of the components of that is language as well. And we also, I also tried to look at how language could also bring together people who are otherwise not, um, do not identify with each other in terms of their political ideology, how uh, language acts as a common thread 
Bringing indigenous peoples together as a way to preserve and celebrate language is key to UNT's linguistic approach. Both Sunshot and Chelia work with Kimmy King and Jim Miernick, professors in UNT's Department of Political Science, as part of the National Science Foundation-funded Conference on Language Endangerment and Political Instability. The conference, which was hosted for two days on the UNT campus, one day at the Smithsonian and one day at UNESCO, is not just about sharing expertise. It's also about sharing personal experience. And we're talking specifically about how there are areas in the world which are either in um, continuously kind of what they call slow violence, feeling of instability for various reasons, law and order situation may not be that strong, and overlaid on that is this very happiness of uh, abundant, you know, agriculture and warm community and, you know, rich culture. So how do those two things coexist and how do they really cause uh, issues for language stability? Um, and then places where there's like all out war and you have got people having to be in a refugee camp that definitely causes endangerment of your language. So we are um, partnering with political science to discuss that. And Sumshod has presented bo uh, at the Smithsonian about her own experiences. And um, we're hoping to continue that conversation in India with um, other groups from the Northeast uh, so to, to really bring that home. And that will be such a great Thing to bring to UNT as well is that yeah. we're doing this, but it's very hard to get that story out to to everybody here to say, yeah. look, you've got this expertise and this in experience. For Sumshot, that means talking about almost inconceivable violence that she both witnessed and endured as a citizen and advocate in India. We grow up very happy, and then suddenly in the 90s, it becomes so violent, and I, military militarization was so high. There was an instance where the army came, like, and the moment I opened the door, a gun was pointed right in my chest. And who is Sumshot? I said, it's me, I'm Sumshot. He came to arrest me. And why you have to arrest me? Don't ask. And they were wanting to take me, but then my mother, my sister, we all protested, and it lasted for like four or five year, hours, like from 7 p.m. till 12 midnight, and then at the end, they made us sign a sheet, a blank sheet. And I said, why you made us sign in this sheet? I said, we'll just write that we didn't steal or destroy your property. Then write first. And he pointed again the gun. Do you sign or no? So we were made to sign on a blank sheet. And Sumshot isn't alone in helping to educate others about the inextricable nature of language and culture. We have several other people coming who are from communities where they're interested in their language and have all these experiences that our own students can learn from. And that's, that's um, kind of, I guess what we wanted to show is this, the, we started with Sumshot and we're building into this kind of strength of um, a reputation that we would be welcoming and also nurturing and then help them bring their story out, which hasn't been you know, they haven't had a, a chance to do that. And mm -hmm. the archives are one way of bringing the story out in a sort of a um, a less contentious way because it's there and it's, it's, it's not going to be lost. It's one of those collective memory, community memory kinds of things. So I can tell my story in a safe way, put it in here, and 10 years from now, no one can erase it and say, you didn't undergo that conflict. 
part two, spreading the word. The archive Chelia referenced is formally known as Corsal, Computational Resources for South Asian Languages. The archive is part of a partnership among faculty in linguistics, information science, and anthropology, focuses on areas such as spelling standardization, text collection, dictionaries, pedagogical grammars, health information, peace and reconciliation narratives, and cultural artifacts. Over the years, Chelia and Sunshot have gathered stories and descriptions and various other forms of information in Lomkhong, many of which they've uploaded to the archive. Here, for example, a Manipur native describes his home life and family in Lomkhong. A repository like Corsal currently doesn't exist anywhere else and has helped to cement UNT's reputation as a home base for South Asian languages research. The region is rife with endangered languages, Munshi says, and preserving them is crucial from a cultural and historical perspective. We know that language is also perceived as a window to a culture. And people, researchers and um, cultural um, scientists, social scientists, uh, see it as a, each language as a, as, an, as a world of its own, a culture is a world of its own. So without knowing that language, you cannot actually know the culture, the people, their, their customs, their traditions, their history. So it's a window into that, that culture. So in order to, and, it, and it's, it's a treasure to, to have this knowledge. Why do we study history? So um, uh, because we want to know about people, certain people, their culture, their history, their, um, their life habits, how they lived or how they live. So um, we like to we like to uh, document these languages before they are gone. That dedication has brought students from around the world, particularly those from South Asia, to UNT. For example, Munshi's National Science Foundation funded research into Mongkinyali, a Pakistani language spoken by roughly 500 people, has attracted students from the region to UNT, where they work as her research assistants. Mankeli is um, a completely undocumented language, so we have just started uh, working on that language um, last year. Um, so uh, um, it's it's a group, of, uh, it's a project in which we we have students, we have American students, Indian students, and Pakistani students and researchers working together. So for me personally, it's it's very very uh, important uh, aspect of this project that we have people collaborating on people from these different contentious areas collaborating on the same project and uh, I think uh, for me it's it's really really uh, something that I feel proud about my name is Javid Iqbal um, I'm from the northern part of Pakistan which is called uh, district in Gilgit Baltistan he's one of Munshi's assistants mm, uh, by profession I'm a Houdini teacher uh, but I've uh, taken education in history, uh, a master program from Karachi University. But I've also done a master's uh, degree from UCL, University College London, and also an MTeach from the same university. 
So I've been teaching, you know, uh, for the last uh, four years. But as a matter of fact, you know, I was uh, very interested in studying languages uh, from the very childhood, as I remember. Uh, but because the country um, doesn't have any, um, you know, sound and good capacity uh, language department in our universities, so I couldn't find a chance to study linguistics. And it was now, uh, in the middle of my career uh, that I found this opportunity to uh, study linguistics at the UNT. He says he's excited to work on the Monkey project while also receiving the opportunity to study and preserve his native language. Uh, I'm a native speaker of an ancient language called Bulushaski, which is called in a few parts of uh, Gilgit Baltistan, but also in uh, some part of uh, Indian Kashmir, it has four uh, dialects. So one of the dialects is spoken in Kashmir and three of the dialects are spoken in uh, Pakistan part, Gilgit Baltistan. So it's a, an ancient language and a very unique and unclassified language so far. So I, I was interested in preserving it and revitalizing it. It wasn't until Javid was a master's student in Kashmir that he realized his native language was endangered. It was a startling revelation, and as someone who had always loved the language, motivated him to find ways to save it. It's constantly under pressure of other big languages like the um, regional languages. You know, Urdu is the national language of Pakistan. Uh, for our um, professional, you know, in our professional life, in offices, in marketplace, uh, you have to speak Urdu, and for education, mostly English. Uh, but in, in, in the region around us, there are other various regional languages. So this Gilgit Baltistan, you know, uh, it's 28,000 square miles um, uh, geographically. Seven languages are spoken. And and in the in the town where I live, Gilgit, is the administrative hub, the cultural hub of the whole you know region. So almost all the um, languages would be spoken in that town. So I can uh, speak uh, you know apart from my mother tongue, I can speak Urdu, I can speak Shina, another regional language. I can speak and understand Kwar, another regional language. I can. Speak uh, understand a bit of Wakhi, another um, regional language. Stories like Javid's are exactly what makes UNT different, Chelia says. There are very, very few departments in the world that can say, oh, well, our students are learning linguistics, and then they come from this huge wealth of knowledge that they can bring. So as we have a focus in South Asia now with Siddharth, myself, and our new our newest addition, uh, Dr. Taraka Rama, who is from the southern part of India, we are really are able to then attract hopefully more and more students like yourself who can then just increase what we are learning and, and you know, where we are teaching you, but then you're teaching us too, right? So it, it becomes this great uh, symbiotic kind of relationship that is not available in, say, the University of Oregon or University of Hawaii, which are fantastic schools for language documentation but they won't have this real focus in South Asia and they won't have this kind of multilingual resource. I'm Mirat and uh, this is my second semester at UNT. This is Midat Shah. 
She also works as Mingxu's research assistant and is working to preserve Mahiyali along with her own language of Kashmiri. So I have done my undergraduate in um, literature, English literature, and my master's also in English literature. So what happened here now is that I'm so, so like super, super excited about translations and everything. But uh, for that, I didn't know about this, but uh, my department chair, Professor Dafmunshi, she guided me through this like whole process of transition from literature to linguistics. So it's like for translation, you have to have a good ground, good hold on linguistics about language and everything to understand the nuances of language and then to translate it to some other language. Currently, with Mingxi's mentorship, she is working to create a new dictionary for Kashmiri. Nidat's five-year plan is to do digital archiving of the literature and of the language. I could have never imagined like doing a... Uh, like language documentation at home or in any other university back there in India, I could have never imagined having the native speaker in front of me and extracting knowledge from that. The more like like the, the possible things that I could have imagined was that extracting data from internet or uh, having some audio clips of that. But here we have speakers from like like from those areas. As she works alongside faculty and peers to document languages. Nidat is often in awe of Mingxi's work and how she manages to put her subjects at ease. Language documentation is like, it's not just you are telling them, okay, what do you call this word and this word? It's a very complex and what I feel it's very intricate because uh, the little documentation that I have done and what I have been told, like uh, Professor Sadaf, she has already worked on a language, Burushasi. So she has actually lived with that community for nine months to get to know them better, to understand the nuances of the language. So it's not just like telling them, okay, what do you call that? Making people comfortable and asking them about their language. Like we have recently, we uh, there's a speaker from, from Pakistan. Uh, he's a speaker of Mankiali language. So we have to make him first comfortable and tell him about like asking questions about his region and making him comfortable with our with um, with them and then ask them about the like uh, like what we actually want to extract for them like, it's not like we're attacking them with these things so like it's enriching for us too for them and for us too Javid and Midat are themselves examples of how language can create a bridge. Kashmir and Pakistan have long been in conflict, but here they are, Chelia points out, two students from those regions working together toward a common goal and celebrating each other's successes. Linguistics as peace building is <laughs> kind of idea. There, there's a, you know, there's a conference there that you guys can host mm -hmm. at some point. Maybe we can host it here where you have languages of the region, mm -hmm. whether you're in the Pakistan region or the Indian region, mm -hmm. come here and let's talk, you know, yeah. so it, there's, yeah, there's yeah. commonality and that's like in said, the language. I could have never imagined a Pakistani sitting in front of me and I'm extracting data from him. I could have never imagined that. But here at UNG, like, I have the opportunity. And yeah. tensions between Pakistan yeah. and India yeah. make that even yes. more. Very, very the, hard. Very Historically, hard. these two countries have not been in good relations with each other since their independence from the British, you know, and colonial times. Um, but I, personally, I, I, I can, I understand that when you talk about these um, people, you know, uh, they, they love each other. 
Well, because they, their origin is the same, their language is the same, their um, cultural heritage is the same, their history is the same. The thing is, sometimes it's only um, politics that, that makes things, you know, worse. Mm. And uh, if you know, um, talk about us, I mean, from Pakistan and she from India, we don't have we don't have any animosity each other each other right we we, we love uh, the language we love the culture um, and, and we share more similarities more, than more similarities than differences yeah. while that's true bringing out those stories is not always easy both chelia and munshi know that firsthand the time intensive language documentation process requires patience and even more importantly understanding Munshi has worked to collect oral histories from those who live in Kashmir or have fled the region, and has proven to be a lesson in trust, one that she can pass on to the next generation of linguists who hope to preserve language in conflicted regions. Some people are very, very willing to share their narratives if, because it's not um, mostly not happy things they are sharing, mm -hmm. so it's very personal and very sensitive. So some people are very, very hesitant in, in sharing their stories. And some people are very, um, um, I should say, not hesitant. People, especially who are not in Kashmir, they are more willing to share because there's no fear of consequences. Um, but people who are still in Kashmir, they're not very, um, they are hesitant because they are afraid of the consequences of speaking the truth. It, it, it's very challenging for us also, for me personally, because um, people are, sometimes people will uh, suspect that you have some other ulterior political motives in collecting people's stories, or maybe you're, you have some other interest, commercial or otherwise political <laughs> interests. So uh, it's, it is difficult to motivate people um, to be to participate in this project because they are they are afraid of the consequences. Part three. Let's talk about the future. What's amazing, though, is in spite of that reticence, UNT researchers and students have collected an impressive amount of language and cultural artifacts. Some entered in Corsal, others still waiting to be cataloged. Part of that success, Chelia says, can be attributed to the changing approach to language documentation, something that will no doubt guide linguists, particularly those at UNT, moving forward. In the, in, in the past, it used to be like the Lone Ranger model for linguists. You would mm -hmm. go in as an individual, and then it would take 20, 30 years to really get a grasp and get to a stage where you could archive all what you had you know, learned. But these days, it seems to be more of a, of a group effort. Um, from two angles. One is like a lab situation where you have research mm -hmm. assistants and you have people coming in like your visiting scholars are coming in and you're really doing con concerted effort to get the structure down. What are the nouns and verbs and how do they combine? You know, what are the restrictions and limits and how the, the sentences are made? All those things that we want to know as linguists. And then the community, on the other hand, is doing their part for literacy and so on. So in the end, you know, I see it like it all sort of comes together in, in some final thing a little bit faster, hopefully, this this new model. So it's instead of 30 years, maybe 10 years to 15 to get start seeing some some good results. 
And, Shelia says, UNT's unique approach to linguistics, especially in its use of technology, will pave the way for the future of language documentation processes. We're not in the humanities. We are not in cognitive science, which are two places where we usually find linguistics. We're really at the College of Information because we're looking at the intersection of our, um, of our study of language with how technology can help uh, develop that or support that. So archiving, searchability and findability of information through metadata studies, and then um, computational providing computational resources so that people can do things like machine translation. Those are the kind of areas of foci that are very different from, say, a, a traditional linguistics department, which really focuses on the way a language is structured and what the limits and the potential is for stru the structure of language. So we are doing that, but we're also combining it with these kind of make, creating computational resources for the language. And then the second area of focus for us is the South Asia focus, which is not available either in, people do South Asian literature, they do classical South Asian languages, Sanskrit, Hindi, uh, Tamil, they may do Dravidian studies, that's Tamil, but we're doing these kind of really indigenous, low resource, low resource languages for South Asia. And so we have a core, you know, we've got our archive for that, the Corsal archive, we've got our computational folks who are working with things in the archive and then we have all of our you know our students who are working to increase those resources so that makes us stand out as something quite unique from other linguistics programs and as kids are a crucial component to saving endangered and indigenous languages chelia and her students are looking for innovative ways to immerse children and teens in languages other than english so for example to teach brushaski or to teach navajo or apache or one of these languages that kids may think is not really cool uh, and they're not speaking it because they think, well, I'd rather speak English because that's the cooler language to speak. One of the things that we're looking at is uh, methods of teaching language that will make it more attractive to kids. So we're looking at marrying our goals of endangered language documentation with um, language teaching and teaching with technology. So next year we have a conference coming here. It's the Pan-Pacific Technology Enhanced Language Learning Conference, and we will we're trying to highlight uh, as one of those things, teaching languages of this kind that we're discussing now. Do it with technology, like a game, or something that kids can get into. Meanwhile, linguistic students continue to be offered the opportunity to take field trips to countries like India and Pakistan to visit the areas of the world they are studying. Munshi has taken students to Kashmir and Pakistan, while Chelia has brought students to Manipur, Assam and Hyderabad, Delhi, with plans to return next year. The trips are made possible through UNT International's Global Venture Fund and Charn Grant, and Javid says those experiences are crucial to students' deeper understanding of the cultures they are studying. Um, you know, reaching out to the communities as such is really crucial. You can, you know, um, close yourself in a room and work as much mm -hmm. as you can. But if you are not able to reach out to the communities, actually, if you know um, people from students and teachers and professors from this university uh, really actually go to the uh, communities on ground, that will tell them something, you know, uh, will encourage them and empower them to work for their languages and, and to uh, strengthen their language and culture. That should be, that will be a really, you know, marvelous uh, contribution of uh, the university.
Additionally, the university is committed to interdisciplinary collaboration, with Wasson partnering with Chelia on language archiving. The anthropologist has worked on projects ranging from how autonomous vehicles need to be programmed to work with groups such as sanitation workers and crossing guards, to helping Motorola figure out how people use technology in the kitchen. Now, she's developing a language archive for Northeast India that is broken into two parts, one for computational linguists and one for indigenous communities. Last year, Wasson, along with two research assistants, spent a month conducting fieldwork in Northeast India, where they observed events related to cultural revitalization and interviewed community members about how a language archive might be useful to them. What did they want from an archive? What were their technology constraints? What, in general, were their, um, their practices of interacting with information resources? Because they are like a small community in the bigger society that speaks a different language, they may not have that much literature in their language. Um, so, but there are always these literary societies that are always trying to find, you know, authors to write stories and poems and news articles, like anything in their language, because they want people to get practice, like reading their language. And um, one of their challenges is distribution. And so if you could put, you know, a monthly journal or whatever, or even like all the books they've published in the past, if you could all put those online, like they're excited about that possibility. And then, and then even like basic things like we had, um, so there's also kind of a phenomenon of diaspora. So a lot of these um, areas, people end up leaving when they're grown up because there's no job opportunities locally. So they go to like the big cities where they're far from their communities. And like, so we talked to one woman who was in that situation and she said, like, recipes, like, I'll be trying to remember how to cook something. And she said, you know, I can go, like, to YouTube and find a million recipes for, like, Punjabi cuisine. But there's nothing for my community. <laughs> I would love to be able to, like, access recipes. That's why faculty, particularly those in the College of Information, which celebrates its 10th anniversary this year, are working so hard to make language accessible to everyone. It's not just professors like Munshi and Chelia. There's Alexis Palmer's work on low-resource languages and computational linguistics, Junwa Dean's research on language and language formats, Oksana Zavalina's work to expand metadata standards, Rodney Nilsson's forays into using parallel Bible texts to improve neural net machine translation, and Alex Smith's fieldwork on Borneo. All of it, Munshi says, combines to make UNT a force in linguistics in the years ahead, particularly when it comes to documenting endangered and indigenous languages. Because of this focus on South Asian languages, we do have a very good um, base in terms of uh, collaboration, possible collaborations in India and Pakistan. Maybe we'll expand that to other areas of South Asia, Nepal, for example. Um, there is a possibility there as well. We already see a lot of interest in uh, other researchers who want to collaborate with us, and we have had um, several requests from the region where people want to work with us. So that's really good, good sign. So we do see our program growing in this purpose. Thanks for listening to UNT Pod. If you'd like to learn more about UNT's International Year of Indigenous Languages series and Indigenous Peoples Day, please see the podcast notes for this episode. To learn more about UNT's College of Information and the Department of Linguistics, visit ci.unt.edu. 
And don't forget to check out previous episodes of UNT Pod, including our recent look at the events of the summer of 1969 at northtexan.unt.edu or wherever you listen to podcasts. 